Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Richard Bonney, and a member of the faculties of law and medicine and public policy, and director of the Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy. I want to welcome uh, everyone to the 16th uh, P. Browning Hoffman Memorial Lecture in Law and Psychiatry. Very happy that we have such a uh, large uh, crowd uh, for this, and I can tell many people from elsewhere in the university uh, as well as from the community, and I think the topic certainly warrants that. Uh, this lecture, lecture is a tribute to the memory of Browning Hoffman, a psychiatrist who joined the University of Virginia faculty in 1971, held joint appointments in the schools of medicine and law, founded the Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy, and laid the groundwork for other programs in law and medicine uh, at the university. He did all this with extraordinary energy and creativity until his work was cut tragically short by a sudden death in 1979. The period of his work, essentially the 1970s, was a time of rich intellectual ferment in law and mental health in both of the sort of large policy domains that make up that field. Uh, a rich body of law protecting the rights and interests of people with mental disabilities while protecting the public interest, and a body of rules governing the quality of mental health evidence in the courts, especially in criminal adjudication. This excitement during that period spawned a new generation of scholars working at the intersection of law and behavioral sciences, including psychiatry and psychology. And among this new generation of scholars were Browning, myself, and uh, my colleague, uh, John Monahan, where is John sitting over there? Um, and eight uh, of the previous uh, Hoffman lecturers, all of whom are listed on the card, I think, that was in your seat. Before uh, formally introducing Dr. Swanson, I want to say a few words uh, about Browning. Uh, Browning had a passion for ideas and awesome intellectual energy. On literally hundreds of occasions, during uh, the five years or so that we worked together, he would come into my office, plop down in an easy chair, saying, I need to rattle your cage. And off he would go into his latest effort to solve what might have appeared to everyone else as an intractable problem. He was a man with a mission, genuine collaboration across disciplines of law and psychiatry and other behavioral sciences, uh, when many times, of course, the theme is conflict rather than uh, cooperation. And he viewed his own job as building bridges to make that happen. His immediate aim was to connect the training and professional activity of lawyers, psychiatrists, and psychologists in a common cause, better public policies, and improved administration of the law. The fundamental idea is putting all these professions in the same classroom at the same time. And he had a clear vision of the possibilities for such joint educational activities, and he put many of them in place uh, here at the University of Virginia within a few years, including the Forensic Psychiatry Clinic, which is a forum for uh, joint discussion about live cases that are being evaluated postgraduate fellowships in all of the pertinent disciplines, including law, and this was even before fellowships became uh, commonplace in law, and the training and co continuing education portfolio that uh, uh, exists at the Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy for people already in practice. For me and all his friends and colleagues, Browning's death was made especially tragic by a sense of promise unfulfilled. Yet Browning himself had a different view. He told me at his hospital bedside that he felt that he had already accomplished most of what he set out to do. And I have no doubt that imminent mortality had scaled down his ambitions in some way, but he did, in fact, accomplish a remarkable amount in his eight years here. He left an enduring legacy for which hundreds of students and residents uh, at the schools of law and medicine owe him a great debt. The fellows and junior faculty, 
whom uh, Browning personally trained during that time period in our program, now serve on faculties of law, psychiatry, psychology, and public health throughout the country and are among the leaders of the field. I have been emphasizing Browning's contributions to law and psychiatry, but his creative vision and intellectual curiosity ranged across the lifespan and touched all of what I will call the sciences of human well-being. We could just as easily have entitled this lecture series the Hoffman Lecture in Law and Human Behavior or the Hoffman Lecture in Law and Medicine. And indeed, if you look at the presenters that we've had in the past and uh, the topics essentially that they addressed have covered all of those uh, areas. To drive the point home, uh, I also want to point out that Browning worked closely during his intensive, uh, intense and fruitful career here with our colleague, joint colleague, Walter Wadlington, whom I'm looking around and I don't see, I think, here today. Um, but he, Walter, was a pioneer in adjacent fields of law and uh, law teaching and legal scholarship in health law uh, and in juvenile law. And Browning taught with him in both of those contexts. Um, I also want to acknowledge uh, the presence here today of John, uh, whom I mentioned earlier, a psychologist who has helped shape the field of mental health law research, both nationally and internationally, for more than three decades. We were extraordinarily fortunate to recruit John to join our faculty and the Institute in 1980, enabling the law school to build on the foundation that Browning had created. I know that Browning would be especially and extraordinarily pleased that this lecture in his memory is being delivered by Jeff Swanson. Jeff is precisely the sort of interdisciplinary scholar that Browning aimed to recruit to this field and to the Institute. After earning his PhD in medical sociology at Yale in 1985, Jeff began his academic career at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston where he was also affiliated with the Institute for Medical Humanities and the Center for Cross-Cultural Research. Um, it's of interest uh, in, the, in, the cent in, in connection with the sphere of Browning's own interests that one of Jeff's initial areas of research focused on treatment decisions for terminally ill patients and the particular role of physician judgments about medical futility. I am always struck by the serendipitous events and connections that shape the path of research careers and perhaps professional careers more generally. In Jeff's case, it was the opportunity to explore the treasure trove of data produced by the Epidemiologic Catchment Area Survey uh, fielded in the early 1980s. This survey produced the first reliable estimates of the prevalence of various types of psychiatric disorders in the United States population. Among the many publications emerging from this work was Jeff's path-breaking article in 1990 entitled Violence and Psychiatric Disorder in the Community, which provided the first population-level data on the relationship between violence and mental illness. One of its key findings was the importance of co-occurring substance abuse in explaining the heightened rate of violence among people with mental illness, a finding that has been replicated many times since Jeff's original landmark study. Think about how crucial this research was and is to mental health policy and practice. It provided an epidemiological context for the clinical predictions of violence or so-called dangerousness that are expected or required in so many social and clinical settings, including emergency psychiatric assessments and involuntary commitment proceedings, threat assessments, in the workplace and in colleges and secondary schools, criminal sentencing and corrections, and even in capital sentencing adjudications. John Monahan's seminal work on the clinical prediction of violence was published in 1981, and he remains the nation's leading authority on assessing the risk of violence. This is what John had to say about Jeff's 1990 article. I read Jeff's classic study when it was published in Hospital Community Psychiatry in 1990, and I immediately called him in Texas and introduced myself. I told him that his study was by far the best thing ever written on the relationship between mental illness and violence, and that it had transformed my entire view of the field. We've been working together ever since then, he said. Indeed, they have. 
1990, John was directing a new research network on mental health law established by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and not surprisingly, one of the three core goals of this research network was to advance knowledge about the risk of violence among people with mental illness. And John invited Jeff to become involved in the work of the network, beginning a career-long collaboration with him and with me. In 1991, Jeff moved to North Carolina, made the collaboration a little bit easier with people at Virginia, and with appointments uh, both at the Sheps Center for Health Services Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke. There, over the past 25 years, Jeff and his Duke colleague Marvin Swartz, who delivered this Hoffman Lecture in 2007, and their extraordinary research team have conducted path-breaking and influential studies on virtually all of the most important policy issues in mental health law, including controlled trials of outpatient commitment and the use of advanced directives in mental health care. I can say without exaggeration that the Duke team sets the standard for the rest of the field. I'm also pleased to say that our team here at UVA and the Duke team have become close partners in the effort to promote evidence-based policy in mental health law. Under John Monahan's continuing leadership, a second MacArthur Foundation research network was established uh, in 2001 to advance research and policy on mandated community treatment of persons with mental disorders. Both Jeff and Marvin were network members, uh, and the network pitched in to support some of their important NIMH-funded studies on outpatient commitment and other forms of what we called leveraged treatment in the welfare system and in the criminal justice system and on the use of advanced directives. It was my privilege to serve at the request of the Chief Justice uh, of Virginia as chair of the Commission on Mental Health Law Reform here in 2006 to 2011 and have served since then as an advisor to the General Assembly. During that time, one of my goals has been to use Virginia as a policy laboratory for implementing the policy innovations supported by the network's research. In this continuing effort, I have drawn shamelessly on uh, Jeff's time and goodwill. One key example is the effort to promote and support the routine use of advanced directives in the treatment of people with uh, serious mental illness, as well as in the care of increasing number of persons who face the prospect of living with dementia and uh, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Jeff serves on our executive committee for this work and has been absolutely indispensable to it. And this brings me finally to the topic of his talk today. The Virginia Tech tragedy in 2007 highlighted the connection between mental illness and firearm violence, especially mass shootings, as well as the connection between mental health law and gun policies. There has been no shortage of political rhetoric on these issues over the past decade, as we all know. Beneath all of the rhetoric, however, is a huge gap in knowledge, not only about the causal pathways, but also about the effects of background checks and other public policies on the occurrence of violence and suicide. No one was better positioned than Jeff to take the lead on the necessary policy research, and he has done so. If you were to look at his CV, as I did in preparing these remarks, you would note the shift of his attention to this topic in the wake of the Virginia Tech shootings. A Google search would show you how much the nation now relies on him for, and his team for good research and for clear thinking on how to address this increasingly worrisome problem. I will close by observing that Jeff's entire career has been marked by the wide-ranging scientific curiosity and restless energy that remind me so much of Browning. He and Browning also share the same sense of urgency in using their work to help solve pressing challenges in law and public policy. So I am deeply grateful that Jeff has found the time in which you can imagine as a backbreaking schedule to spend a couple of days in Charlottesville educating the university community about violence and mental illness. So it's with great pleasure indeed that I present Jeffrey Swanson to deliver the 16th Hoffman Memorial Lecture in Law and Psychiatry. Jeff.
Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for coming. It is uh, such a distinct privilege for me to be here to talk to you today at this uh, special lecture in honor of Dr. Hoffman. And thank you so much, Richard, for the very kind introduction. And I'd, I'd like to excuse you from attending my funeral, should that uh, <coughs> uh, occasion arise. Um, but it is a, it is a challenge um, and, a, and, a, and an opportunity um, to think carefully about this very, very timely uh, and um, somber topic, a vexing topic of firearms, uh, mental illness, and the law. Um, and I'd like to invite you this hour to join me as we try to think carefully about these problems of firearms-related injury and mortality and mental illness in our communities, what those problems have to do with each other, how they're not related to each other necessarily, what we know about that scientifically, what we don't know, and maybe just as importantly, what we think we know sometimes that ain't so. And I'd like to, to help uh, think together about how we could use such an understanding to find our way to some interventions and policies and laws that would really meaningfully address um, this, uh, this uh, horrible problem of, of gun violence that we have in the United States, but to do so in a way that will balance risk and rights with respect to firearms access, uh, that will uh, do so in a way that will avoid adding to the burden of social rejection and stigma that people with mental illness often face when people assume that they are uh, violent. Um, and, and before I begin, um, given the timeliness of this topic and the recency of the terribly sad news that we uh, are still absorbing from Oregon uh, from last week, I'd like to, to pause and just remember the 10 people who died on October 1st, 2015. I'm gonna be presenting a lot of statistics, a lot of numbers, and I like to remind myself that every one of those numbers represents a human life, a human story, uh, cut short, family members and loved ones left behind, um, and a tragedy, uh, each in its own way. And I think we need to remember that, and I'd also like to remember uh, today the 92 other people who died as a result of a gunshot on the same day, October 1st, 2015, uh, throughout our, uh, our country, um, as a result of suicides, that's more than half of them, and gang violence and domestic uh, violence incidents. Um, all of them... Uh, deserve our uh, passion, passionate uh, thinking and, and care and devotion to this issue. I'd like to begin uh, also with some context. I'm not going to start by talking about mental illness because I'm a context person. I'd like to begin with some international comparisons. What you see here are uh, rates of, uh, of crime in 15 industrialized countries, including the United States. Uh, these are data from the Crime Victim Survey of Gallup Europe. And what's remarkable to me about this display, these are the percentages of people in each of these countries who have been victims of crime and violent crime is at the bottom, is just how average the United States of America is. We're just a little bit below average. We don't have an exceptional crime problem when you look at these data. Oh, yes. Well, I'm trying to do that. I had this set up before. I had this all set up. Sorry. Are we good? Okay. Now, now you can see it? Okay. My apologies. So, um, Right, it's just how average the United States of America is. Uh, we're right there in the middle, uh, not too high, not too low. But now I'd like to show you some data about a particular subset of crime, homicide, where there's a, there's a violent crime and a dead body. And now the data look a little bit different. I've only put 14 of the countries on there. I'm going to put the 15th one on there in a moment for a dramatic effect. 
But you see here, these are rates per 100,000. So just imagine that you live in a city the size of Roanoke, Virginia, and you might expect that uh, maybe one or two times each year you'd read in the newspaper that there has been a homicide. And uh, here's the United States of America. That's our homicide rate in 1995, several times higher than our peer countries in Europe and the UK and Japan. Uh, there is variability among the other countries, but ours is much, much higher. So how could this be? This is kind of a paradox. That crime is about average, but homicide is much higher. Now, homicide rates have come down uh, in recent years, uh, but the pattern is still there. Our um, homicide rate is several times higher than these other countries. Well, why might that be? What's the result? Of what, how, did that, how does that paradox come about? Um, well, it has something to do with our unique relationship to firearms, because in the United States, when there is a, an assault, it's three times more likely than these other countries that a firearm will be involved. So we have uh, angry young men in the UK. They might uh, be angry and impulsive and intoxicated, and uh, then uh, somebody gets punched in the nose. In the United States, the same incident, someone might pull a handgun and there might be a dead body. These are uh, rates of... Uh, uh, aggravated assault in 2004 and 2014 in the United States of America. And you can see there that the, the number has come down substantially, but the proportion of them that are related to firearms has actually gone up a little bit. So let's look at one of these comparisons between the United States and another country in a little more detail. These are the declining homicide rates in the UK and in the United States. Um, our homicide rate has gone down by 13% over the past uh, 10 years or so, and in the UK it's gone down by 45%. Uh, but here's what's really happening. If you look there at those bars, the orange portion of the bar is the, is the proportion of homicide that is uh, committed with a firearm, with a gun. And you can see in the United States we have, oh, about 18,000 homicides every year, and about 10,000 of those are with a firearm. In the UK they're down to about 800 a year, and about 34 of those are with a firearm. Now, uh, you, you, can, you can understand this a little bit when you look at the uh, per capita rates of firearm, of home, uh, 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 of firearm possession by uh, uh, people in these different countries. In all of these countries here, the average is about 17 guns for every 100 people. And in the United States, it's uh, 97 guns for 100 people. Uh, these countries here have asked themselves the question, uh, do individuals have a legal right to possess a handgun for their personal protection? And the answer uh, in these countries is a no, and the answer that we give is yes. We live in a country that, has, uh, that celebrates guns, that has domesticated guns. Um, we live in a country where private gun ownership is represented by very powerful corporate interests and political interests. Uh, we like uh, guns in this country, and we've got a heck of a lot of them, uh, 310 million firearms in private hands. I'm not a law professor, so I have to draw a cartoon here. Uh, the, this is my cartoon of how other countries approach this. Basically, everybody the, in the general society is inside that frame, that red box with a big no-gun sign on it, and that's the default in terms of... Uh, uh, legal access to a gun, and then they make some exceptions. They open the gate there at the top and allow exceptions for certain people under certain conditions to have a firearm. If you want to be a hunter, you could belong to a gun club and store your gun maybe at a gun club, or, but you don't need a handgun to shoot a pheasant or a, an assault rifle. Now, in the United States, it's just the opposite. It's sort of the photographic negative. We put all the guns inside the box with the people, and that's the default. Everyone has the right to a firearm, and then we make some exceptions at the top where we allow certain people under certain circumstances, we restrict them because they're so dangerous that they can't have a gun. So it's just the opposite approach. Now we have actually tried in the United States uh, the approach that other countries take. These are uh, homicide rates in the, uh, in the District of Columbia over two decades. Think about this as kind of the heart monitor of DC over two decades. And those are the numbers of homicides month by month but I've, I'm tricking you a little bit because I'm not showing you all the homicides. I'm only showing you there the homicides that occurred and the suicides without a gun, not the gun-related ones. And you can see 
there that they haven't really changed. They didn't change over those two decades from uh, 1968 to 1988. But now look at the, the homicides with a gun and the suicides with a gun. There you see there's a little lurch there. There's a little decline right in the middle there. Um, and uh, the, what you see here in this research study is that there's no significant decline in homicides and suicides without a gun, but there's a significant decline, 25% decline in homicides with a gun and 23% in suicides with a gun. Well, something happened here. What happened? Well, that's uh, what we call a policy shock in the, in the business. There was a restrictive gun licensing a ban that was put into effect and it effectively defined handguns as unlicensable and so they were banned in 1976 and Colin Lofton and his colleagues did this research study published it in the New England Journal of Medicine and they uh, estimated that the gun law saved 42 lives each year. Now what's interesting too is that this um, uh, effect was only seen in the, in the District of Columbia. It was not seen in the neighboring jurisdictions of Maryland and Virginia. And, and I think this headline should be the memorable headline about this law. Actually, it's not, though. The memorable headline about this law came two decades later. And it's this. The United States Supreme Court um, overturned the handgun ban in the D.C. versus Heller case and then decided that it was a, a violation of the Second Amendment to the Constitution. They extended it to the states in 2008. And that's a watershed because it sets the policy context. It sets the frame within which we need to think about solutions in this country. We can't do what those other countries on the bar graph do, which is to say, the idea of everybody having a handgun for their personal protection is too dangerous. We're not going to allow that. We have to do something more different, difficult, which is to decide who are the dangerous people who, are, who pose such a high risk of harming themselves or others that we are going to restrict their, their uh, right to own a gun and abridge their Second Amendment right. That's very difficult because Violence is complicated. It's caused by many different factors all interacting with each other. And people are very complicated. But that's what we have to struggle with. So our starting point, it would be nice if we had a blank slate like this. We could get a bunch of smart people together at the University of Virginia and say, what works? And we would do this. That's not where we're starting. We're starting here where the Constitution, the constitutional right is at stake. And the Supreme Court has, uh, has said that, this, that the Second Amendment confers this individual right. But they said it's not an unlimited right. So there's, there's this albeit there, the albeit. The albeit is that the court emphasized nothing in their opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill. And with respect to mental illness, that refers to uh, the record of involuntary uh, civil commitment or another mental health adjudication of those individuals um, dating from the 1968 Gun Control Act, which I'll, which I'll mention, uh, are prohibited from firearms. So really, after the Heller decision has clarified this, gun control in this country is more, more people control than it is gun control. It's trying to think about uh, individuals and their risk. Now, that's not to say that we don't have lots of variation at the state level in firearms-related restrictions. Um, there are differences in the ways that states um, enforce uh, anti-gun trafficking laws, and there are differences in background check laws. Some states have universal background checks. Some states have laws with respect to child safety and safe storage of guns, or whether you can have an assault weapon or not, or a high-capacity ammunition magazine, where you can have a gun, gun, guns in public places. And the Brady campaign, which is named after Jim Brady, who was Ronald Reagan's press secretary, the late Jim Brady, and was uh, uh, injured in the assassination attempt of uh, President Reagan. The Brady scorecard gives a score, just adds these points up in every state, guess one, and you can just scatter plot the Brady score against the CDC's firearm fatality rate, and what you get is a, a scatter plot that looks like that. It's a strong negative correlation. The stronger the gun regulations, the stronger those restrictions are, uh, the lower the firearm-related fatality rate is. It's a, it's a, a negative 0.56, which explains about 31% of the variation. I hasten to add, as a good researcher, this is a correlation. It's not a causal uh, statement. We can't infer from this necessarily which direction the causal arrow is going. Because there's another variable that's just as important, and that's the gun ownership rate. And that's correlated at 0.63, and it's positive. The higher the gun ownership rate, the higher the household gun ownership rate, the higher the gun fatality rate. So you can see there's Massachusetts down there at the bottom, and there's Washington in the middle, and 
Wyoming up there at the top. Uh, and guess what else is correlated with the household gun ownership rate, gun law restrictiveness? That's negatively correlated. So <laughs> there's these three variables. Now there's a couple of hypotheses here. Here's one. Hypothesis A, that more gun uh, regulation leads to fewer gun deaths. But it's mediated by this variable right here, that more gun regulation suppresses the number of guns, and if you have fewer guns, then you have fewer gun deaths. But there's a hypothesis B. It's this one, that exogenously, there's a variable out there that is the public attitude towards guns, the, the, the cultural acceptance of guns, whether, as I've said before, guns are, uh, are, are in, the, in the culture and in the, uh, in the community in, in this way, and that produces two effects, more guns and less gun regulation. And in turn, more guns leads to more gun deaths, but we don't necessarily have a causal connection between gun regulation and more gun deaths. And that's hypothesis B. Now, can we test this? Well, it's difficult, but you know, let's try. What you can do is stratify the states on household gun ownership. So you've got states uh, 0 to 39 percent, or 34 percent of the households have guns. And in, in those states, on the panel on the left, you have a very strong correlation between the laws and, and the fatality rate. In the middle there, where the, we, we have a, a medium uh, rate of household gun ownership, 35 to 49 percent, the correlation decays a little bit, and it's down to uh, uh, 0.44. And in the states where everybody's got guns, more than 50% of the households have guns, um, the correlation evaporates. It's gone. But here's the thing. We can't really tell because look at the x-axis down there. Look at the range. On the left, it goes all the way up to 100. On the right, it only goes up to 10, which means we don't have any examples of states that both have a lot of guns, high gun saturation, and a lot of gun laws. Now, what's an example of how this would affect things? Well, imagine... Uh, a law professor, you know, at the University of Connecticut who has signed into a hospital a couple of years ago and now uh, under Connecticut law, when this professor wants to go and buy a gun, let's say the professor becomes depressed again and wants to get a gun to end his life. Uh, well, he's going to be prohibited from doing that in Connecticut. And if he lives in Connecticut, the chances are he doesn't have another gun. Now let's imagine the same law professor uh, who works at the University of Wyoming, well, he's got a gun for every day of the week. It's Wednesday, and he could use the gun he has for Wednesday because even if he's deterred, the, there's so many guns in the background that the law may have a less of an effect. That's one idea. At any rate, we have a problem with gun violence in this country that is, uh, that is ex exceptional. This is a, a bad example of American exceptionalism. Uh, it uh, claims the lives of uh, 31,000 people every year, uh, most of them, are suicides, uh, 84,000 non-fatal injuries, a total of 117,613 uh, 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 casualties uh, last year. When do we pay attention to this? We tend to pay attention to it when there is a horrifying mass casualty shooting by a disturbed young man. And we ask ourselves all of these questions. Is this about the guns, unregulated guns? Is it about violent culture? Is it about mental illness? And we hear prominent voices in the public square that tell us this is about mental illness. Uh, a, a good example is, uh, is Congressman Tim Murphy, who, as you know, is, has proposed legislation to reform our mental health care system. Uh, he said recently there was Elliot Roger in Santa Barbara and Jared Loeffner in Tucson and James Holmes in Aurora, Colorado and Aaron Alexis at the Washington Navy Yard. How many more must die before we finally deal with our broken mental health system? So... Gun violence is about mental health, and to fix it, we need to fix our mental health care system. Now, I, you know, as a mental health services and policy researcher, would love to fix the mental health care system. The system that we have, if you can call it that, is fragmented, and it's overburdened and under-resourced, and as a result, we have uh, more people in our biggest city jails with serious mental illnesses than we had in the biggest asylum in the 20th century. We have people who are waiting in EDs uh, to, to, because there aren't enough hospital beds, and it's, a, and it's a scandal, and it uh, costs our society uh, uh, over $300 billion a year. But if we were to fix it, uh, I, I regretfully have to admit it's not going to solve our gun violence problem. We, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. Um, there are also uh, examples of what I call a crisis-driven law or crisis-driven policy. Um, a good example here is uh, 
the New York, the New York SAFE Act, the Sa Secure Ammunition and Firearms Enforcement Act, uh, sometimes there is this, um, this, this uh, felt need to do something, do something immediately. And in New York, Governor Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, after the horrible massacre of 26 school children in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, passed this law, and it included a number of provisions that gun violence prevention experts would applaud, such as uh, requiring a, a universal background checks and beefing up enforcement of, uh, of gun trafficking laws and banning assault weapons and high-capacity ammunition magazines. And then they, uh, the, the uh, authors of this legislation said, while we're at it, let's reach into mental health territory and let's use the mental health work source as a surveillance network to... Um, identify people at risk of harming others or themselves and require that they report the names of these individuals to the police to match with the gun registry so that those uh, folks could have their gun rights taken away. And let's also expand the reach and the features of involuntary outpatient commitment. Um, now, uh, this is an example, I think, of not thinking about the potential adverse consequences of a law that might sort of overcorrect and then it's kind of difficult to undo. Because uh, can you just imagine, let's say there's a, a college freshman who gets up her courage to go and see a counselor on her campus and say that she's thinking about harming herself. Now the college uh, counselor has to report her to the police and this might just have a chilling effect on her willingness to seek help and to disclose what she's really thinking. It turned out that this uh, feature of the law wasn't very popular and lots of people didn't like it. Um, it, it created some uh, interesting uh, bedfellows here. You've got the psychiatrists and the social workers and the nurses and the mental health advocates. They all didn't like the New York SAFE Act for this particular reason. And also the sheriffs and the uh, NRA and the Rifle Association and the veterans, because they didn't like it either. So, you know, here I have nothing against uh, kittens and dogs, but you have strange bedfellows here. And the, uh, not, and, the, and the kitten says it criminalizes mental illness and will have a chilling effect, and the dog says it violates the Second Amendment to the Constitution. We've heard a lot of voices saying what we need to do to solve this problem is get more and more and more gun disqualifying mental health records into the national instant check system so that when people go to try to buy a gun, they won't be able to do that. There's been a big push to do that, the mayors against gun violence, and you can see this is the trend right here. This is the increase, this exponential increase in the number of gun disqualifying mental health records in the national instant check system. And it pretty much tracks these uh, mass shootings. You can see uh, there were about 298,000 in there in 2007. And after the, uh, the, uh, the shooting of Virginia Tech and the Nix Improvement Act uh, incentivized states to report these uh, records um, it, as a condition of receiving grants from the Department of Justice, it goes up to 1.8 million by 2012 when the Sandy Hook shooting happened and then uh, jumps to 3.2 million between uh, 2012 and 2013. Meanwhile, to date, 99%, more than 99% of the mental health records in the NICS have not resulted in a federal gun denial. So if it is having an effect, it's uh, probably not a, not a very big one. Here's the problem with that, with that construction. It turns out that if you look at the epidemiological data on the relationship between violence and mental illness, mental illness, serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and depression that that impair the brain's ability to reason and perceive reality and regulate mood, those major disorders that, that, that psychiatrists try to treat and that are so expensive and costly uh, and such a social burden, they account for about 4% of all of the violence that's out there. So if we could do this wonderful thing of curing those illnesses, it would be great. But it would 96% uh, of our violence problem would still be with us because it's caused by this whole other cocktail of factors, like being young and being male and using substances. And, and poverty and childhood victimization with people when they're growing up and, and developing a personality and they're being victimized, grow up to be perpetrators, exposure to violence in the social environment. We've got lots of data about that, some that I don't have time to tell you about. So violent, mental illness is not a very strong signal in violence. Now here's some data, some new data that uh, John Monahan is a co-author on this paper. It's a new analysis of data from the uh, MacArthur Risk Assessment Study. And this gives us a little bit of a picture about firearm violence in particular with respect to uh, psychiatric patients. Now, the sample here are patients who have been admitted to a hospital in an acute episode of a, uh, of, a, of a psychiatric crisis. So it's not a random sample of people with mental illnesses in the community. It's selected sometimes for people who do have increased risk. 
And this study basically took about 1,000 patients, a little less, and followed them for a year and, and it measured whether they were violent or not. And the answer there is that 28% committed some violent act. It could be a more of a, a minor act, like pushing or shoving somebody or something more serious. And here is the subgroup of that uh, uh, total where a gun was involved. Uh, 23 uh, people, 19% of that total of uh, violent individuals. Uh, uh, there's a subgroup there where the violent act with a gun actually involved a stranger, someone that the uh, perpetrator did not know. So, a thousand people with serious mental illnesses, admitted to a hospital, discharged, followed for a year, 2% of them uh, commit a violent act with a gun. So that it sounds like a very low relative risk, uh, absolute risk. It's actually uh, a fairly high relative risk in the sense it's about three times higher than the general population estimate. Um, but if you would predict that somebody was going to commit a violent act with a gun, you'd be wrong 98% of the time. Let's look at these uh, individuals, the characteristics of them. It turns out, as the authors have told us in the paper, that they are well known both to the mental health and the criminal justice system. 78% uh, of them have had a prior hospitalization. Over half had uh, over three hospital admissions in their history. 91% um, have a prior arrest, and 52% have three or more arrests. So these are already people in both the criminal, criminal justice and the mental health system. Um, they also have some significant criminogenic factors. Uh, astonishingly, 91% of them report that they were physically abused as a child. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a very significant risk factor for adult criminal offending. Uh, and, 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 and 68 or 68%, over two-thirds, reported that their father had two or more arrests. That's also a significant factor predicting violence and, and uh, different kinds of criminal involvement. And substance abuse, 61%. Uh, what about mental health symptoms? Well, there's a high rate of suicidality, but with respect to psychotic symptoms like hallucinations and paranoid symptoms, 13%. So there's a disconnect between the sort of stereotype of the mentally ill offender with a gun who is is psychotic and the, the uh, actual uh, features and, and uh, um, uh, characteristics of these individuals. Now what about mass shootings? Uh, well, there are a lot of studies that profile the people who uh, perpetrate mass casualty shootings. Here is one by Reed Malloy and colleagues in 2001 and it uh, profiled 34 young males who killed at least three people in a single event. 70% of them were described as a loner. 61.5% were substance abusers, about half of them were preoccupied with weapons, and 44% had violent fantasies, and 43.5% were victims of bullying. Now, only 23% had a documented psychiatric history, and 5.9% were psychotic at the time of the incident, although some of them had an emerging psychiatric, uh, psychotic disorder, which emerged later. Now, what's interesting here is, you know, you can, you can describe these individuals but it turns out, I mean, this profile also matches the description of tens of thousands of other troubled, alienated young men who are never going to do this. These are risk factors that we call nonspecific and that they apply to many, many more people who are never going to do this than who will. That's the problem with trying to find the needle in the haystack. I would argue we should pay more attention to the haystack and try to prevent the unpredicted. Now, suicide is a little bit different story because... Suicide accounts for over half of the firearms deaths, and mental illness is a very strong vector in suicide. This is a meta-analysis of uh, all of the studies that were available uh, that uh, looked at the relationship between suicide and uh, mental illness, and the range is between 47% and 74%. So suicide accounts for 50 to 75% uh, mental illness does of suicides. It's interesting, you can see when you look at the CDC data, uh, these are that pie chart is the is uh, the um, all of the um, the uh, fi firearms related fatalities, and you can see over half of them are suicides. That's the orange wedge there. Those are fatalities. Now look at the non-fatal injuries that the CDC has recorded, and self-harm accounts for only four percent of the non-fatal injuries. Well, why is that? Well, one reason is the following: if someone intentionally tries to hurt themselves and they use anything but a gun, on average. 5% of them die, 95% of them survive. If they use a gun, this is what happens. 84% die and 16% survive. This translates into a public health opportunity because if we could shift 
the means that people use, even without changing the survival rate or even without changing the prevalence of, uh, of self, uh, uh, self-inflicted injuries, we could actually have a significant effect in re- reducing the suicide rate. This is a, an extrapolation from the CDC data on how many lives could be saved. This is an example of over 10 years. If we just nudge down a little bit the proportion of people who use a firearm, we would save a lot of lives. Why this is important, a lot of times suicide is the act of a, of a young, impulsive, intoxicated, temporarily distressed person. And if they survive that, they're not going to go on to die from suicide. It's the classic, as they say, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it's, it's personal for me because a 19-year-old cousin of mine ended her life with a firearm when she was a freshman in college. And, and uh, the family has never recovered from that. It, it reverberates through families and, and communities uh, over the generations. I think about this problem in terms of these three spheres that come together. They're not isomorphic. Uh, We have suicidality, interpersonal violence, and mental illness. They uh, they overlap. And this is what our gun restrictions do that are based mainly on involuntary uh, commitment. The restrictions are both uh, under-inclusive and over-inclusive at the same time. They identify lots of people who are not uh, dangerous and never will be, and they fail to identify some uh, who are. Here are some examples of how the criterion of involuntary commitment as a gun prohibitor comes up a little bit short. Here's an example uh, that shows you that involuntary commitment identifies many people who are not violent. This is 331 people in a study in North Carolina who were involuntarily committed. If you break down the the question about uh, violence and threats, 33% of them uh, had not in the period before their commitment uh, made any kind of threats towards other people or violent acts. 17% 17% had made verbal threats only. 32% had committed an act you might call simple battery, but uh, without uh, using a weapon and not causing injury. And 18% had committed a serious violent act that involved injuring someone or using a weapon. If we unpack that 18%, it's also interesting. Uh, uh, 66% had a weapon in hand, didn't injure anyone. That's 13% of the total. had an injury without a weapon, and that's 2% of the total. And down here, that little uh, uh, maroon box is 3% of the total of people involuntarily committed who injured someone with a weapon. Again, uh, contrary to the stereotype that we uh, think about when we think about violent mentally ill individuals. The, the criteria also fail to identify many people who are dangerous. We published a study last year on the... On the uh, the conjunction of, of two interesting characteristics, uh, impulsive angry behavior and access to firearms. These are people who, when they get angry, break and smash things and get into physical fights. Uh, now, anger is kind of a normal human emotion. Everybody gets angry. Of course, when I get angry, it's, it's, it's uh, called righteous indignation. Um, but people get angry. But the, this is anger that is extreme. It's destructive. It's unpredictable. Um, and 8.9% of the adults in this country have this impulsive angry behavior and access to guns at home. And 1.4% have impulsive angry behavior and carry a gun around with them. Now, it turns out that these individuals in this category of concern meet criteria for lots of psychopathology. They, but it's not schizophrenia. It's stuff like personality disorders and fear and anxiety and alcohol problems. Um, but it's not the stuff that you get involuntarily committed for. In fact, fewer than 10% of the individuals in these groups, but let me just point out, uh, yes, so so fewer than 10% of the individuals in those risky groups have ever been treated in a hospital for a mental health problem. And so they're they're not going to be identified by these criteria. Now, they might have other problems, like they might have uh, misdemeanor assault charges, and that, uh, in many states, does not uh, uh, convey a prohibition from a firearm. Uh, And I was also going to show you this uh, interesting uh, finding, which is that uh, there's a connection between this risky combination of guns, carrying a gun around with you, and um, having impulsive angry behavior, and the number of guns you have. So people who have uh, six uh, guns or more are are several times more likely to be in that category of carrying a gun around with them and having impulsive angry uh, behavior. 
So do background checks actually work? What do we know about that? Well, here is the results of our research study that we did a couple of years ago. This is a multi-state study. We've repeated the results in Florida. We're about to publish those. And we're trying to do the same in Virginia. Different states have different uh, interesting um, combinations of laws and the, and the characteristics that go into uh, producing different uh, uh, rates of, uh, of, uh, of violence and gun-related uh, violence. But this is Connecticut. These are individuals, 23,282 people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression. And you see two lines here, two trend lines to compare. The red line are people with these illnesses who were disqualified from purchasing a firearm because they have been involuntarily committed, so they can't legally buy a gun. Uh, now, we've taken out the criminal records just so that we can focus on the mental health policy effect. The blue line underneath it, those are their counterparts in the same mental health system with the same disorders. They've been hospitalized, but they sign in voluntarily so they can legally buy a gun. They don't have a gun-disqualifying mental health adjudication in their history. And you can see that before 2007, the red line is higher, which is what you would expect if the law was not being enforced very well. If people could go in and, and you know, here's your application to buy a gun. Have you ever been involuntarily committed? No. This is what Phil Cook calls lie and buy. After 2007, something happens. What happened was Connecticut deposited thousands of these gun disqualifying records into the Nixon. Now you will flunk the background check if you come in afterwards. So this is interesting, and it suggests that... Um, it worked, but here's another take on it. it, it only 7% of this population of 23,000 people with serious mental illnesses was disqualified because the Connecticut doesn't commit very many people. And 96% of the violent crimes among these people were committed by those not affected by the gun disqualification and reporting policy. And the factors most associated with uh, violence were, guess what, the same factors that predict violence in other populations, being young and male and disadvantaged and using drugs and alcohol. You know, people with mental illness are people. They have all the same risk and protective factors for violence as, as you and I do, and uh, range, you know, from uh, your uh, harmless grandmother to your not so your neighbor's not so harmless intoxicated boyfriend, and everything in between. So, trying to generalize and say, well, this is about mental illness, uh, is 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 it's like having, you know, a wonderful vaccine for an infectious disease, but only in, in vaccinating seven percent of the population, and meanwhile, the disease is caused by all these other things that you're not addressing. This, these data here from our study in Florida illustrate two aspects of this problem. This pie chart here shows um, 50 people who ended their life with a gun in Florida, all with mental illness. And we know in our study if they were able legally to buy a gun at the time or not. And it turns out that 72% of them were not gun prohibited. On the day that they used a gun to end their life, they could legally walk into a gun store at a federal firearms uh, licensee at that retailer and buy a gun. 28% were gun prohibited. So the first problem is there's a failure of our criteria. If we had a better crystal ball, we could see who is at risk, we might be able to prohibit people and keep them from having their hands on a gun. The, the other problem is that people um, who are prohibited get one anyway. They have a gun, they can get it on the secondary market, there are just so many guns out there. That's a problem with the enforcement and the implementation of the laws that we have. You can see the same pattern here with uh, violent crime with a gun. 38% of those individuals who committed a violent crime with a gun in our study were not gun prohibited. They could go legally buy a gun. 62% of them, at the time they used a gun to commit a violent crime, were not legally able to have a gun, but they had one anyway. That, again, is a problem with enforcement. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting policy possibility. We also found that in Florida, of the people who committed a suicide with a gun, the majority of them had been brought in in the middle of a mental health crisis on an involuntary short-term hold that did not progress to a gun-disqualifying involuntary commitment. So they signed involuntarily or they were discharged early, but the system knew that they were in a crisis. And for some of these individuals, it happened multiple times. And then they ended their life with a gun. We could do what some states do, California and I believe Virginia, which is to say, let's look at that as a moment of risk and say temporarily remove firearms access from people like that and then give them an opportunity to have their guns rights back if they don't pose a risk to themselves or others. So I don't know what the solution is for every state. I think the action is in state policy. You know, the federal uh, uh, situation with gun politics is, is a 
pretty radioactive and, and pretty paralyzed, but at the state level, which is, makes sense because that's where the state policies like involuntary commitment um, are, are all wrapped up in what different states are doing differently. And there are a lot of policy efforts that can take place at the state level. What ought to guide that, according to our thinking about this with our group, and Richard is a part of this group, the, the risk-based uh, uh, consortium for risk-based firearms policy, are these priorities. The first one is let's prioritize contemporaneous risk assessment that's based on evidence of behaviors that correlate with violence and self-harm at specific times, not with mental illness as this broad category. Um, if this is really about risk, let's think about things that actually tell us that someone is at risk at a particular time, and let's focus our efforts at keeping the gun out of the hands of a person like that at a time like that. The second is we have to do something to preempt existing gun access instead of simply thwarting a new gun purchase. If all we do is stop someone from going and buying a new gun from a federal licensed retailer, and meanwhile they have 10 guns at home, it's not going to actually deter them. So we need to put a legal tool in the hands of uh, law enforcement and family members to remove guns from people on the basis of risk, uh, on the basis of suicidality or uh, risk towards other people, even if they don't right now. Um, you know, they're not criminally accused and they, and they don't actually uh, have a history of involuntary commitment. In our country, that makes sense. Also, we have to make sure that we do things that, that pay attention to legal due process because there's a constitutional right at stake this is important to do legally. It's also important to do politically because, you know, if we want to find that common real estate, that place to stand with people who disagree with us on the politics of gun control, and we probably have a range of views in this room about that, we need to focus on this fact that people care about this right. And so if we're going to tweak the, the prohibitors on the front end, we need to understand that people need to have a right to get their gun rights back and to have due process when their gun rights are removed for public safety concerns. We also need to preserve confidential therapeutic relationships. Physicians and other mental health professionals now have a unique role as gun gatekeepers that they maybe didn't have before. Uh, in North Carolina, for example, if someone wants to get a concealed handgun permit, the sheriff is going to send a letter to their doctor and ask if they suffer from some medical or, or physical or mental condition that should limit their ability to safely operate a handgun. Doctors don't know what that means. Nobody has defined this as a particular kind of functional capacity. Um, there are examples where doctors might be called upon, or, or mental health professionals, to, um, uh, to inform a court about whether someone should get their gun rights back. Uh, how do they do that? Um, if, uh, physicians are rightly concerned that they, are, they, they don't want to be a law of, uh, 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 an arm of law enforcement, but th this, is, this, is, uh, this is a new, new territory. We need to think very carefully about therapeutic relationships and confidentiality because that's the bedrock of the doctor-patient relationship. We also need to, I think, recognize that we're not going to find this tiny needle in this big haystack. We need to think about preventing the unpredicted, get upstream, and try to address the social determinants of violence. Think about having a better social safety net, having healthier communities with fewer kids growing up who are, who are exposed to trauma and grow up to be perpetrators. Um, and, you know, have improved access to substance abuse treatment when people need it. That would be a, a, a major improvement in, in the risk of, of people harming others or themselves. Um, we have some specific recommendations that our Consortium for Risk-Based Firearms Policy has, has, uh, come, has uh, promulgated to try to uh, put these principles into effect. One is um, to prohibit firearms on a temporary basis. Uh, based on these behavioral indicators, uh, such as people who have a history of a, of a violent misdemeanor conviction. California is one example of a state that prohibits firearms from violent misdemeanors, and there's good research by Garen Wintemute that show this actually has had a public safety effect. Uh, temporary domestic violence restraining orders, there's a period of time when an ex parte order might be in effect, and it doesn't in many states confer a uh, loss of gun rights, but that might be the highest risk time. So that would be another example. Also, what about correlates of violence, such as having DUIs or DWIs, uh, illicit drug uh, convictions? Those could be used. Those records are there. They could be used to, to prohibit firearms. And on the mental health side, we could think about uh, prohibiting firearms from people who have a short-term involuntary hospitalization in a psychiatric emergency. Again, temporary, but allowing people at, uh, a, a subject to a review to get their gun rights back. Um, as I've mentioned, we need to think about carefully about a, a restoration process that is rational, that is meaningful, expedient, and clinically informed. 
And then the idea of these dangerous persons preemptive gun removal laws. Connecticut and Indiana pioneered these laws. These were laws that were enacted after uh, mass shootings and they were done to try to do something about, um, about interpersonal violence. In fact, as they have been used, they've been used more often for suicide concerns. Um, and California, the gun violence restraining order. This, this was enacted after the Santa Barbara shooting. Um, Elliot Roger is a good example. He, his parents were, his family were concerned about him. They called the police who made a social welfare check and determined he didn't meet the criteria to be detained under California's involuntary commitment law, the 5150. He was um, basically left alone and then we know the terrible tragic result. Also in uh, North Carolina, in my hometown this last year, there was a, a terrible incident of an angry young man who shot three students in the head. And people knew that he was angry, he was scary, people knew he had guns, but he legally obtained them. So let me just end with this, big, the big picture. All of you have been to our National Mall and you've seen how, what a sobering sight it is to, to observe 58,000 names carved in a granite wall. That's the number of United States military personnel who died in the Vietnam conflict over a 10-year period of time. If we were to build a monument to commemorate all of the people who have died in this country in 10 years as the result of a gunshot, we'd need a monument five times larger than the Vietnam Memorial. 306,946 people have died. We could probably reduce that number with uh, some sensible policies. As we think about and try to find the courage uh, to do that, I'd like to remember again, these are three of the individuals who died as a result of a, of a gunshot in, in my hometown in, in Chapel Hill. There's broad public support. There's a, there's a wide swath of common real estate between people who disagree with each other on politics, who don't disagree, that we have a serious problem in this country. It's not all about mental illness, but we need to educate the public about that. And we, we could do a number of these things um, there's not going to be a big headline that's going to say on a particular day uh, that uh, more universal background checks in an improved social safety net and better criteria for prohibiting risky people from getting their hands on a gun uh, prevented mayhem on Thursday. If it, if it happened, uh, why would that matter? 